Brothers and sisters in Islam, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Today is part two of the Seerah biography of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa Brothers and sisters, it would be a good idea for you to get some notes or a writing pad to write some information because when it comes to the seerah, there is just so much rich information. And sometimes it's hard for me to simplify it. I need to speak slow sometimes. So maybe I need to repeat some things. It's so important to learn the seerah in order to understand the Qur'an. You cannot have the Qur'an without knowing the life of the Prophet <clears throat> In fact, there is a great scholar by the name of Ibn Hazm from Al-Andalus, Spain. He said, It would have been enough just to learn the seerah of the Prophet without even having the Qur'an to prove that he is a Prophet. If we didn't have the Qur'an, he said just the seerah, the life, knowing the life of the Prophet would be sufficient enough to make you believe that he is a Prophet of Allah. It is impossible for anyone to understand the Qur'an without knowing the life of the Prophet And the thing about the Qur'an, it guides you. It touches on what's necessary for you to learn so that you can connect to Allah Taala. But the Qur'an does not provide references. It tells you a story or a guidance, but it doesn't tell you what it's relating to. Only sometimes. For example, the Battle of Hunayn is in Surat At-Tawbah, but you don't know that it's referring to it. In Al-Amran, the Battle of Uhud, but you don't know what it's referring to. And many more. If you know the story behind the ayat, the context, you'll understand the Qur'an better. In fact, it's dangerous, may I add, and I say this confidently, it's dangerous for you to try to understand the Qur'an without knowing the context in the life of the Prophet You know what context means? Of course a lot of you do, but I can see younger people here. The word context is everything when you want to learn the Qur'an. It's everything. For example, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks in the Qur'an about taking arms against the disbelievers. And he motivates you to take up arms and fight them and not be afraid of them. 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned this? We have to learn the context, the seerah. What's this story about? Does it mean that you have to go around every corner, wherever you see a disbeliever, you kill him or her? No. That contradicts the entire Qur'an actually. But the ayah is referring to when the Quraysh, disbelievers, the enemies of the Prophet were heading out to annihilate the Prophet and the companions. And Allah had forbidden the Muslims from fighting for about 13 years, not allowed to fight back, even with persecution. And finally, Allah brought down very strong verses telling them, go out and fight them wherever you see them, round the corner, meaning the soldiers that are coming to fight you. And Allah says in other verses, don't be the starters of war. So there's a context. Otherwise, you'd go ahead and say, I've got to kill every kafir, the, the next door neighbor, the one that comes to the mosque. And that defeats the purpose of Islam completely. There goes Islam. If that was Islam, it would have been extinct a long time ago because it truly would be a barbaric religion. My brothers and sisters in Islam, in a nutshell, it's impossible to understand the Qur'an without knowing the life of the Prophet We need to teach our children when they go to sleep, instead of reading them stories about Harry Potter and the likes, why don't you read them stories about the life of the Prophet and make them love it. Wallahi, he is truly the master of masters. Rasulullah is Sayyidul Awwalina wal Akhir. He is the best. You are learning about the best of the best. Sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam. He is the one that not only Muslim scholars have praised, but also non-Muslim historians and great thinkers and writers. He was rated according to one of the great historians, Michael Hart, and others like him as the best, most influential man in the history of mankind. To him, the most influential. Doesn't necessarily mean that he was a prophet of God to him, but most influential. And in Islam, definitely Rasulullah al-Amin, the truthful, the trustworthy. Brothers and sisters, before I begin today, I'm going to talk about pre-Islamic Arabia. I'm not going into the story of Muhammad yet. Pre-Islamic Arabia is essential for us to learn. You need to bear with me. You need to learn what happened before the time of the Prophet You need to learn the lineage. How did Arabs become Arabs? You need to know about the Arabs. Why? Not because the Arabs are better than anyone else. As the Prophet said, There is no superiority of an Arab above a non-Arab, except in piety, in God-consciousness and God-fearing. But why do we have to learn about the history of the Arabs? Number one, the Qur'an has come down in Arabic. And in the context of what happened to the Arabs. And Rasulullah came out from among the Arabs. And he began the da'wah there. You will appreciate knowing the history beforehand because the Qur'an constantly refers to people before Muhammad For example, in the Qur'an Allah says, Who are You will have no idea. The people of Tubba. Who is Tubba? And then you'll understand from today insha'Allah that Tubba is the title of the king of the Arabs of Yemen. 
And then you'll start learning history about them, what Allah is trying to say about them, subhanahu wa ta'ala, to you, what Allah is saying to you. So let's go into it. First of all, I'll just recommend a few books for you, for those of you who want to read a little bit more about the seerah. I always get asked this question, what can you recommend? I'll recommend some modern day books that are written in English. And the best ones that I can think of that I recommend, because their English is the best, except for one of them. The best among the seerah books of today is The Sealed Nectar, Ar-Rahik al-Makhtoum by Mubarak Fouri Rahmatullahi Alayhi. He's an Indian scholar, but his Arabic was profound. The problem with that book is that it's English, English translation is a head door. You read it, you can't go through past two pages, you just want to put it away. It's the only problem with it. So unless you understand Arabic or Urdu, you're not going to enjoy it very well, unfortunately. Maybe one of us can re-translate that book, inshallah, in more of a simplified language, in language that we can understand. The Sealed Nectar is probably the most authentic source book about the seerah of the Prophet I also recommend, this is a really good book that is in really good English, and it's really good to connect with. It's called In the Footsteps of the Prophet by Dr. Tariq Ramadan. Another one is Noble Life of the Prophet by Ali Salabi. I told you, get a, a pad and a, and a pen, you would have written these down. Another one is Muhammad by Yahya Emmerich. That one's more for adults. If you really want to look at how he refutes the Orientalists. You know what Orientalists are? The non-Muslim historians who came out to try and pick on every little thing about Muhammad's life and turn it into something horrible. Another one is Muhammad, his life based on the earliest sources by a convert, a revert to Islam by the name of Martin Ling. Excellent English because he's got Shakespearean English. The only problem with that book is that you've got a few errors in there that are factually wrong. Just be careful about them and the horrible stuff about a love story about Muhammad and it's not even true, it does, it, it's far away from the truth. So these are some of the books. Like, how do we know that what we're talking about the Prophet is true? How do we know if everything we're saying is true? Where did we get all this from? You know, brothers and sisters, the seerah of the Prophet is not like any other history book that you read from the West. Or any other book even from the Arabs. A lot of it has so many problems. This person gives a different history to this person. This person claims this history and that history. It's always been changed and altered. Except for the seerah of the Prophet we have an extremely detailed, authentic narration of his life. And that's one of the miracles of Allah to be honest. If Allah had said in the Quran, which he did, that Rasulullah has been sent to all of mankind, Rahmatan lil alameen. It was a mercy to all of the world, the jinns and the humans. Then his life story in detail has to last with us, even 1,400 years later. And subhanAllah, we have detailed stories about the Prophet When I do marriages for people, it's so easy to talk about the life of the Prophet more than Jesus Christ more than Moses more than Ibrahim Why? Because we have so much detail about the intimate life, the intimate life between the Prophet and his own wife. In a, in a respectful manner, of course. Rasulullah told us about everything. We know when he spat, where he spat, 
We know all these things about him because of the seal. So, the Sahabas, they brought to us his life story. The nephew of Aisha anha, lived with her for a very long time. He narrates the most from her because he lived with her. He didn't need a mahram. She didn't need a mahram. You have some other companions who are really close, especially the younger ones. Among the earliest historians that we have and the best source of the history of the Prophet has to be none other than a man by the name of Muhammad ibn Ishaq. Hands up if you've heard of him before. Ibn Ishaq. If you haven't memorized that name, guys, young and old, it's time for us now to learn who our great scholars were and where did we get our information from. This is our history. Everybody before, you know, we ruled the world in justice and peace and everybody loved us for more than 1,000 years. We reached China, guys. Everybody took the technology from us and our language. We translated most of the books of the word, including the old Greek books. Al-Andalus in Spain is one of the greatest places of our heritage in technology and advancement and knowledge. Everybody knew all of our scholars. It was only in the past 100 years after World War I, when the Ottoman Empire fell, the West tried those enemies who wanted Islam to die, they tried to change our knowledge and our education. You didn't hear about it in the curriculum. You know more about uh, the Colosseums and the Romans and the Caesars and their empires more than our own. So my brothers and sisters, please put a bit more effort today and learn these names that I'm going to give you. Don't think of them as boring. They are extremely important. As you grow older, especially the younger ones, you remember these names, insha'Allah, and they'll help you know that our religion is authentic. So, the early man is Ibn Ishaq. He lived 85 years after the Prophet wasallam. 85 years, Hijri. So that means he has met the children of the companions, the grandchildren of the companions, and possibly some of the companions themselves. Maybe Abdullah ibn Masud. Maybe. Maybe not. But this man Ibn Ishaq, long time ago. So he knows so much about the Prophet ﷺ. He met all these people. He even traveled the world to get information about the Western civilization. The Romans and the Persians. His book is amazing. And he came up with about 15 volumes. Unfortunately, in those days, they used to write it with their hands. Page they didn't have copywriters and um, printers like what we have today. So then came his student about 100 years later. Uh, he, uh, student of his students, uh, sorry, uh, his, his student, not 100 years later, a few years later, and he produced a book called Sirat ibn Hisham. Sirat ibn Hisham is the greatest source that scholars use to talk to us and write their books about the life of the Prophet. And he summarized it from 15 volumes to about 4 volumes, took out all the unnecessary information. But, subhanAllah, Ibn Ishaq's books were found again in. Uh, in, in um, subhanAllah in, um, in western worlds I forgot but non-Muslim historians found his books written in his own handwriting we have some remnants of it so what I'm trying to say to you is this our seerah the history of the Prophet is not something made up and every single book of seerah till today that has been taken from Ibn Ishaq and Ibn Hisham it is an authentic source you won't find it any different and this is one of the miracles of Rasulullah these books, they have, you know what they have? They have something called the Sanad. Ever heard of Sanad? Hands up if you heard of Sanad. Amen. Oh, this word Sanad is so important. 
Sanad. Sanad, guys. Sanad is how we get our hadiths. How do you think we know what hadiths came from the Prophet ﷺ 1,400 years ago? How am I supposed to know that the Prophet ﷺ really said this or really did that? We have something called Sanad. If you don't know what it is, at least learn the name. Repeat after me. Sanad. <laughs> Sanad. You can say it. How old are you? Nine? Nine-year-old knows it. Shame on you. He just learns it now, inshallah. Don't ever forget it. Sa Sanad. Alright? Sanad. Sanad is like, you know when an archaeologist finds something in the desert and he studies how long this bone has been there or this artifact has been there and they've got little signs and remnants and they follow it and they follow back to other things, other remnants. Sometimes you look at bacteria and you trace it back to other type of bacteria. Scientists can go all the way back to like 50 million years ago and tell you what bacteria existed there. And they have, by the way. The Cambrian fossil, 50 million years ago, they can tell you by tracing it back to bacteria. We have Sanad. We can trace it back by name after name after name of each person, every person who said it and heard it, their life, where they lived, whether they were truthful or not, everything. We've got all their names. Not a single system in the entire world actually has this thing called Sanad, except Muslims alhamdulillah. We are the only ones who have this type of preservation. And you know what? This is another reason for us to believe. It's a miracle from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah says, We are the ones who sent down this dhikr. The dhikr is the Quran and the Sunnah of the Prophet And we are the ones who are preserving it, not you. So we have the Sanad. Nothing like it in the world, brothers and sisters. Now let me take you into the interesting part. Where did the Prophet ﷺ come from? Let's go back in time. At the time of Nuh ﷺ, he said he had a few sons after the flood. One of them that we are 100% sure of, his name was Sam. Hands up if anyone's Sam here. Any Sams here? One Sam. <laughs> Sam, maybe across the world, hearing on live stream. Assalamu alaikum, by the way rest of the Muslims in the world. Sam is where the Arabs and the likes of the Arabs came from, including the Jews, the Israelites, and the people who look like them. You know, the Assyrians as well, those types of people. That type of color we all came from, Sam. This man, Sam, it is said that he had two brothers, Ham and Yafith, Ham, they believe that the Africans came from, dark colored people. By the way, those who are listening from around the world, I don't mean to be racist. In Australia, it's okay. We can say dark colored people, they don't get upset. Number two, Yafith. Yafith, they say that the Caucasian people came from what we know today as the Europeans, the white people. And the rest of them came from Sam. Muhammad came from Sam as well. They call them the Samiyun, the Samites. From Sam came two men whom the Arabs traced their lineage to. The first one is called Al-Qahtan. Al-Qahtan existed about a few hundred years before Ismail Ismail. And the Arabs traced the earliest lineage of their Arab, Arab, Arabism, Arab, their Arab nature to Al-Qahtan. They're called the original, genuine, 
pure Arabs. In Arabic, they call them Al-Arab Al-Ariba. And the name Arabi didn't exist before Al-Qahtar. He had a son named Ya'rab. And from his name, they took the name Arab. His name after a man. And from there came the original Arabs. Some of the original Arabs were the ones who existed in Medina at the time of the Prophet They're the people of Yathrib, Al-Aus and Khazraj, the original Arabs and some others. Even till today, I hear about them in Saudi Arabia or other places. Arabs, man, they, they trace their lineage. They've got a family tree that takes them, some of them, all the way back to Nuh All the way back to Nuh some of them. And sometimes we hear this shaykh, so-and-so, so-and-so, Al-Qahtani. Ever heard of that before? Al-Qahtani, meaning he comes from Qahtani. Truly, they have an Arab lineage all the way in their family tree. It goes all the way. Arabs have this thing about their honor. They will die for honor. <laughs> people die for money. People die for a woman. People die for um, power. People die for all sorts of things. Arabs, before Islam, honor was the biggest thing. They used to have wars and battles between tribes and countries just because of one thing. You know what it is? Honor. Whatever they considered honor is, they'll fight till death. Even till today, we still have this jahiliyyah in us. Sharaf. You know, there's sharaf, but you have to have religious sharaf. Right? In the olden days, they used to think that your moustache, you grow your moustache long, no one's allowed to touch it. That's your sharaf. They go, that's your honor. If you touch it, people would kill each other over it. <laughs> you know, we also have about, you know, some customs about turning a foot towards someone. In the Western culture, it's nothing, or in non-Arab culture, but to us, this is shut up. How dare you turn your foot at me? We go berserk about that one. So this is customs and traditions, but this idea of shut up is a big thing. Some of it is very noble, and some of it is jahili. <clears throat> For example, one man, I forgot his name, the Sahabas, he bought Dar al-Arqam, Speeding it toward now. Dar al Arqam, we'll talk about it. Dar al Nadwa, sorry. We'll talk about it next time. It used to belong to the Quraysh, it's where the council was. And he bought it for uh, a bottle of wine. I'll tell you the story next, next lesson about this whole thing. Very special place. Later on, when the Muslims took over and there was Muawiyah who became the Khalifa, this particular companion sold Dar al Nadwa for 100,000 dinars. And that was cheap in that time. And Muawiyah got angry. He says, this is our heritage, our history, our sharaf of the Arabs, the honor. How could you sell it for such? He said to him, listen, man, I bought it for a bottle of wine. You know, the man who owned it was drunk. And he signed the paper and became one. He goes, Islam came. What sharaf, what honor do we have in Dar al-Nadwayans? What's this? That's the place where they conspired against the Prophet ﷺ from. You want to come here and honor? I sold it. And he donated the whole money for Sabilillah anyway. So sometimes the Arabs still had, even the Muslims, even the companions sometimes can forget, and this idea of the Arab honor comes in. The worst thing you can do to an Arab, Arabs do to each other when they swear at each other, say, Ilan Sharafak. This is the worst swear you can do. May Allah curse your honor, they say. This is the worst you can do to an Arab. Now, the non Arab, it's nothing big. But uh, just to show you, at least they have fights and wars over it. I shouldn't have said that. My dad's going to kill me. Brothers and sisters in Islam. There was another Arab. Now there are also Arabs called Al-Arab Al-Ba'ida. The extinct Arabs. They are Ad and Thamud and the likes of them. Extinct. The only thing we have of them is their buildings that are carved into mountains. Ever heard of Petra in Jordan? There's also one down in... Uh, the Thamud people in the, away from Mecca, from Medina. And you can see their houses are carved in mountains. Thamud, they, 
they're extinct. We have no remnants of them. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala destroyed them. Then you have the third type of Arabs, which is the majority of us. The Arabs who live in the Middle East and so on. By the way, when I say us, take it easy. Most of us here who are Arab, we say we're from Lebanon or Syria or Palestine or here or there. Most of us here are actually not even Arabs, to be honest, by lineage. We became Arabs later on, most of us. Even Ismail who wasn't an Arab, you know that, right? Was Ismail an Arab? No, he wasn't an Arab. Where did he come from? Ibrahim where did he come from? Where? Lebanon? You wish. Huh? Jordan? Georgia? Where's that? Georgia. Babylon. Good, good. Not Egypt? You sure? Come on, man. Maybe it's Egypt. Hajar, Egypt. Huh? Yes? Turkey? Where? <laughs> Who? Ismail's wife is? Ibrahim's wife. is Egyptian. Correct, correct. The Egyptians weren't even Arabs. Did you know that? By the way. Hajar came from Egypt, but they weren't Arabs, the Egyptians. They became Arabs later. Maybe that's why they changed the regime to a good. I don't know. <laughs> Take it easy, Egyptians. I love you. The uh, Ismail's origin was from Babylonia. That's the heart of, of civilization. And he migrated with his mother Hajar. We all know the story. Remember the story? They went to Mecca. The story is long. You all know this story. And he grew up among the Arabs of Jurhum. Then he had his children, and from his children's children came the Arab al-Mustariba, al the Arabs that became Arab, Arab, Arabized. And those Arabs later on became so eloquent in their language that they even were more superior than the real pure Arabs in the Arabic language. Among them was Muhammad from Ismail alayhi salam, from his progeny came a man named Adnan. Now why is that name important, Adnan? Anyone's name Adnan here? Who's Adnan? Ah, no, Adnan's here? All, okay, Adnan. An Arab who became an Arab. Why is he important? Can anyone guess? Why is Adnan important? Huh? Why? Anyone? Adnan. Say Adnan. You have to memorize that name. Adnan is the 20th great-grandfather of the Prophet The 20th. So Rasulullah is the 20th generation later. Precisely. Precisely agreed upon by all the scholars. So Rasulullah's lineage is known precisely and perfectly. That's what I'm trying to say. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He chose Muhammad from the best bloodline that you can imagine. The best. Not just the best then, the best then and the best that will come. As I told you, the real Arabs lost a bit of their Arabic and the Arab Mustaraba became even better than them. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knew that in the lineage of Ismail salam, later on, 20 generations to come, they will be the masters of Arabic that all the Arabs had pride in and honored them with and Muhammad wasallam was going to be from them. Okay? That's why it's important to know his lineage. You have to know that his lineage didn't come from any bloodline. So Ibrahim let's go back now. Ibrahim and Hajar went to, migrated to, to the middle of nowhere. And Allah ordered that Ibrahim returns. 
Hajar stayed there. And the story is long, I'm not going to repeat it. Zamzam came out by the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Sahih Hadith that Jibreel came down and stamped his foot in the form of a man and Zamzam came out. Zamzam therefore became the symbol, everything of that place. Then, as the story goes on, there was a tribe from Yemen. What happened to them was that they had a river from which they drank from and they used it for their plantation and their survival. It was called Ma'rab. Sad Ma'rab. The dam was broken and everything dried and the, the Yemenis had no more water. And the Arabs that were there, there were many tribes with many chieftains. They started to separate in the world. Arabs, some of them went to Iraq. They went to Iraq. Some of them went to Sham. Sham today is, used to be Greater Syria. Now Sham is Lebanon, Syria, Palestine, Jordan, parts of Turkey. That's Sham. And honestly, Yemen at that time, they were the only Arabs there. There were no other Arabs at all. We're talking maybe, uh, what, 5,000 years ago. 4,000. 5,000 years ago. At the time of Ibrahim would have been about 3,500 years ago. Another tribe called Thaqif, they went to Al-Ta'if. There were also the Ghassanites, Al-Ghassasin. They went to Hashem, as I said, 300 AD. There was also Al-Manadira, the Lachmites. All these names, I don't know if you're in, you really want to know them, but just let you know. They went to the borders of Iraq. And these guys, Manadira, they became friends with the Persians. And they were the heart of technology and ilm and knowledge for the Arabs before Muhammad Among them came a scholar named Ibn Sirin. Have anyone ever heard of him? Ibn Sirin, great, great scholar of medicine, interpretation of dreams and so on. There was also Musa ibn Musayyib who conquested or conquered Spain later on. We have great people from those Arabs of Iraq. And these guys, they, these Arabs from Yemen, they were good looking. Um, and the Persians called them the king of the Arabs. Anyway, let's move on. Some of them lived in Iraq, as I said, and those Arabs became Christians. They became Christians because they were allies to the Romans in Iraq. Later on, they took on the Persian beliefs and they became allies to the Persians. The Persians nicknamed them, as I said, the king of the Arabs. The Persians were full of arrogance, pridefulness. The Romans were better than them because the Romans were Christians. The Persians were Zoroastrians, they worshipped fire. And that will explain to you why some of the beliefs came into the Arab world when it came to fire and idolatry and pridefulness. came a little bit from here and from there. The Arabs were actually pure. From the time of Ismail and Ibrahim السلام, there was a tribe named Jurhum and they came from Yemen looking for water. And you know the story, they found Ismail and Hajar and they settled amongst her. Jurhum tribe could have killed Hajar and her son and taken over Zamzam. But who knows why they didn't do that. Remember we said about the Arabs and their honor. Remember when I said some, some is good, some is bad. This is a good type of honor, Sharaf. It was among the honor and loyalty that Arabs respected themselves even before Islam. You find a woman alone or a child alone, you do not harm her. Otherwise, it is a 
it is a shame upon the, the, the tribe forever. So they lived among her. As I told you, their honor is everything. Take money away from them, they're everything, but not their honor. They lived among them, Ismail السلام, grew up. It is said that he is the one who learned how to hunt horses and tame them from the Arabs. The Arabs were horsemen, the stallions, and so on and so forth. And Ismail learned the Arabic language just as good, probably even better than them. He was a poet, eloquent, Arabic-speaking prophet of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Ismail Then we know that the story goes on where Ibrahim and Ismail built the Kaaba. They built the Kaaba. And when they built the Kaaba, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said to Ibrahim to stand and call to the people to come to it. Allah says, Allah said, and he told Ibrahim stand and call in Hajj to all the people to come and they will come to you from every far corner and deep areas of the world, from the valleys, from the mountains. This, my dear brothers and sisters, is nothing but a miracle. And truly, Allah and Ibrahim asked Allah in the same ayah, in the same dua, he said, Oh Allah, make this land a pure land, beloved to the hearts of the people, that enters their heart and makes them come there. Truly, my brothers and sisters, every civilization that had ever heard of Mecca, whether they were the Arabs, whether they were the Christians, whether they were the Jews, any people venerated and respected the Kaaba, as soon as they saw it, they found an aura to it. Everybody, even now, you go to the Kaaba, never seen it before, you go, even every time you go there, you look at it, something makes you respect it. The aura on it. This, my brothers and sisters, is a miracle from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And from the dua of Prophet Ibrahim Now, brothers and sisters, the story is going to revolve around the Kaaba a lot. You're going to hear a lot about it. And you're going to learn now how idolatry came into the Kaaba and who brought it in and so on. My brothers and sisters, the Kaaba was actually built by Ibrahim first of all, rectangular. You know that curve that you see? Have you ever seen a picture with that curve? People stand inside of it, curve, and it looks cube, and then there's a curve. And people do tawaf around the curve, not inside the curve. Have you realized that? You know that one? It's called Hajar Ismail. It was a little room where Ismail used to live in and pray in. The Kaaba was actually all the way there. It was rectangular. Later on, you're going to find out why it became the cube when I come to the story in the next class, inshallah. We'll leave it to that. It had no cover over it. It was just bricks. And there was the Hajar al-Aswad, the black rock. Some say it came from Jannah, it was white and the sins of the people made it black. I've got some disappointing news for you, my brothers and sisters. The scholars have not pinpointed its authenticity. We don't know if it's really authentic. The hadiths are weak, some of them are fabricated. We're not really sure whether the black rock really was white and the sins of the son of Adam changed it to black. But truly it was a rock from Jannah. It was a rock from Jannah which Jibreel brought. My brothers and sisters in Islam, and so the Kaaba became venerated. They began to do tawaf. Ibrahim made the sunnah of all the rituals that we do today, the same ones 
the Safa and Marwa, the Sa'i, the Tawaf, the praying at Maqam Ibrahim, everything that we do today is from the Sunnah of Ibrahim salam. It was lost, half of it was lost along the way, and Muhammad wasallam brought it back to the way of his father Ibrahim salam. His father truly because Rasulullah is the offspring of Ibrahim salam because of Ismail are we all clear up to here? Have I lost you? We okay? طيب. Let's look now at what happens next. We all hear about the Kaaba and Mecca having idols in it. Can anyone tell me how many idols they think were inside of the Kaaba? Huh? 350? 60? 360, correct. Some historians say it was 360 because of the number of the, year, of the days in the year. The Arabs didn't have a calendar. They didn't count months and days. But they had a year. And they used to mark their days and months by events. For example, the, the, the year of the elephant when the Prophet ﷺ was born. That's how they used to say. You know, two years before this event, three years after that event. That's how they used to do it. Reminds me of the village back in Lebanon, the elders. They also have the same thing. They used to say... You were born, I asked them, when was my father born? When was my mother born? And they'll say, he was born uh, five years after the last harvesting of your grandfather's land up in wherever, after the rain. When, when's that? I have no idea. That's how they count. When the livestock ran away, when the harvesting happened and it, and it was a drought. When, <laughs> so everybody marks these events. That's what the Arabs used to do before Islam, before the Hijri come. So let's have a look at something. How did the idols come in? Did you know, for the next, at least, for the next 2,000 years or less, the Arabs everywhere in the world, not a single Arab did shirk. They all stayed on Tawheed, on the religion of Ibrahim Maybe they were not practicing, maybe they did other things, but there was no shirk in the Arab world, ever, until something happened. There was a man by the name of Amr ibn Luhay. What was his name? Amr ibn Luhay. If you can't remember his name, I'm not going to make you remember it, just remember the dirtbag. You can call him the dirtbag. This guy, Amr ibn Luhay, existed about 500 years before Muhammad That's when idolatry came in, 500 years before the Prophet and what happened was, remember Jurhum? I told you they came to Kaaba and they lived with Hajar. There was another tribe called Khuzar. Have anyone heard of him? Khuzar? All these names. Next time, ring a writing pad, guys. I've said it three times. Khuzar, original Arabs. Amr ibn Lahay was from them. And he was their big man. They all respected him. He was big. He was everything. They wanted to take over Mecca. So they had a battle with Jurhum. And they beat the Jurhum tribe. So the Jurhum, they went and buried Zamzam. They buried it. For the next 500 years or so, nobody could know where Zamzam is. Until, who came along? Abdul Muttalib. Who's Abdul Muttalib? The grandfather of the Prophet That story will come next week about how he found Zamzam once again. Just before the coming of the Prophet Jurhum buried it. 
Allah would not allow Zamzam to be shared by a man who he knows is soon going to introduce idolatry into Arabia. Not Zamzam, not the Holy Zamzam. A miracle from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when he came out. And it was a miracle from Allah that it got buried and no one would know until close to the Prophet There were still some Jurhum people there when they buried it, the Kaaba stayed, and this man comes in, Amr ibn Luhay. He became the authority of Mecca. Everything he said, everybody followed. The Arabs had this thing. Their chief, they follow him. He becomes a Christian, they become a Christian. They become a Muslim, they become a Muslim. The Arabs were like it. The chief is their honor. So what happened? Amr ibn Luhay, this man, he was a trader, tradesman. So he went to a sham, the heart of trade at that time. And he met a people called the Amalekah. In the Bible, they're called the Amalekites. These people are the enemies of the Israelis, the Jews hating. Have you ever heard of the story of David and Goliath? Dawood and Goliath. Goliath was the king of the Camelots, of the uh, Amalekites. The Amalekites. They were actually giants. In Arabic it means giants. To the Israelis, they were named after a man named Lika. But to the Arabs, they were truly giants. Compared to the Arabs, the Arabs are of medium height, generally. And the Amalekites were about, you know, nothing below six foot something. Seven foot. So they were probably two meters. 190, 190 centimeters, two meters. Two meters and above. Huge people. And they were, they were extinct. They, they, they perished after the battle with Dawood. However, some of them stayed. And uh, th when Amr ibn Luhay came along, this was before Dawood, that was after Dawood, he found some of them still there and they were still in authority. Before Dawood, no, after Dawood. The Amalika were a respected civilization by the world because of their size, especially by the Arabs. And he found them worshipping idols. He said, what's this? You know, rocks carved out. And they said, we ask them for provision. We, when we're in war, we ask them for God to help us. And they call upon God, the ultimate God, to help us. They, they're our channel between us and God. And Amr al-Muhay liked that idea. So he said, I want to follow this. They said, good on you. We'll gift you one of these gods. And he took a god of theirs, obviously an idol, by the name of Hubal. Hubal is the original idol of the Arabs. That's why we'll always hear, when you leave the seerah and the battles, between the Muslims and the Quraysh, especially in the Battle of Uhud, you hear Abu Sufyan at the time was a Muslim. He came out and he said, What? Glorified is Hubal. And the Prophet said, Replied to him, We have a mawla wa la mawla lakum. We have our protector and you have no protector. Allah. So Hubal was the first. He brought him into Mecca and he ordered the tribes and everybody. They must worship the idols. 
Everybody had to obey. The Prophet said in Sahih Bukhari and other Sahih Muslim and others, one of the narrations he said, he said, the first one to make livestock holy. Livestock, cows, uh, camels, sheep, make them holy. And the first one to worship idols and bring them into the Arab world is Amr ibn Luhay, the Khuza'i man. I saw him in hellfire with his intestines and organs dragging behind him. He is the one who did this. So what did he do? He brought in all sorts of idols and he gave each tribe an idol to worship. Each idol was designated for each tribe. For example, there was Wad, Suwab, Yaghuth, Ya'uq, and Nasr. They were the gods from the time of Nuh. Each tribe took one. I won't say their names of the tribes, but each tribe had an idol that they honored, and this was for that tribe. And the way Amr ibn Luhay knew these names of these idols, the shaitan actually came to him in a dream. And he said to him, Hey, there's Wad, Suwab, Ya'uth, Ya'uq, and Nasr. These are the oldest, oldest idols from Nuh. time. Make them. Make them gods. And that's how he brought it in, the shaitan helped him. He made new rules in Mecca. You have to know these rules because the Quran actually talks about it. And when we talk about the Prophet, we're going to come back to these rules and what happened. Some of the rules are as follows. He said to each tribe, Listen, some of you who don't live in Mecca, and some of you who need to travel away from Mecca, you have to worship God. They said, We're worshiping God. He said, No. You have to have a channel between you and God, Allah. You know, like Greeks, ancient Greek, Zeus is the big God. You got all these other little gods. That's how he started making him believe. No different, Greek theology. So he said, Huban is the big one. He's in Kaaba. And each one of you have to take something of their idols. What do you take? He said, you have to take a piece of the rock of the Kaaba. Take a little rock. You take it with you for each tribe each person and you worship it along the way or a rock from around the Kaaba in Bukhari it says that the Sahabas used to say this we used to worship rocks when we found a rock that looked nicer than another rock from the Kaaba we throw the other rock away and take that and make it our God the nicer looking rock you can see it's based on nothing and if we didn't have any rock, you know what they would do? They would pile up some dirt, make it a little heap. We'd get a goat, a female goat, and would milk it, the milk, all over that pile. And then we'd make tawaf around it, and it becomes holy. <laughs> Ibn Hajar al-Asqalah, he says, great scholar, he says, the companions used to say, that we used to make our gods out of anything. Anything. We don't have any rock. Sometimes we'd make our gods out of dates. And when we got too hungry in the deserts, we start eating our gods. Eating your own gods, subhanAllah. 
This is what they started to believe in. SubhanAllah. You know what? It's not strange. This day and age, we come back to the same rubbish. I know we're Muslims and I know all this stuff. But today, even the most technologically advanced countries of the world, SubhanAllah, they're so advanced, they don't believe in anything. They'll still come and make sure they worship, uh, I don't know, this idol of that thing and this idol of that thing. The Hindus, for example, they don't have an aqidah. They've got no system of the worship of God whatsoever. All you've got to do is just worship many gods. You can have a God of your choice, of anything that represents anything. Whatever you like. In the US and Australia and Europe, all over Europe, they believe in star signs and some believe in tarot readings and that you know that they have your astrology reading. People believe that if you're born in January, then you're of this character. If you're born in February, you're of that character. They're still adopted till today. Star signs. What else did uh, Amr ibn Luhay do? He mutilated livestock and made them holy. And I'm wondering why the Hindus make the cows holy. This happened among the Arabs. Allah says in the Quran, "Ma So this is one of the verses that we read and a lot of people really don't understand what it's saying. What's this? Allah did not make the Bahira and the Sa'iba and the Wasila and the Ham as laws. But it is those who disbelieved. They are lying and fraudulently forging it upon God, making lies and most of them do not even think. So what is Al-Bahira? I'll just tell you an example of what they used to do. Al-Bahira is the holy female camel. When a female camel gave birth to five calves, she became holy. They clipped its ear and cut it. No one was allowed to use it. It's allowed to graze anywhere it likes. No one's allowed to touch it. And when it died, both men and women ate it. It was holy, sacred. That's the Bahira. Sa'iba is the holy male camel. When a male camel had ten uh, 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 calves, it became sacred and holy. Or when a man made an oath, says, Oh Allah, if you cure me from this and that, my camel will become holy. And so it became holy. It can graze wherever it wants. No one was allowed to put anything on it. No one was allowed to harm it. It's holy. And some of it became a form of worship that brought them close to Allah. Wasila is the holy ewe, the female sheep. The female sheep, if it gave birth to seven lambs, it became holy. The seventh lamb, if it's a male, they had to eat it. If it was a, if it was a female, only the men can drink its milk and it's haram upon the women. All these silly things. Ham, a holy ram. The male sheep. If it had ten sheep, lambs, it became sacred. No one's allowed to touch it, no one's allowed to kill it, no one's allowed to graze anywhere. Holy livestock. And truly, uh, Iblis, when he became Iblis, he challenged Allah and he said to him, to Allah I'm going to command them and delude them. They're going to start clipping and cutting ears of animals. We never knew what clipping of animals meant until idolatry came in. Now we know. They're going to use them to make them holy and shirk between you and, and them. What else did Amr ibn Luhay do? You all know the talbiyah. When you go to Hajj, what do you say? Labbaika. Allahumma labbaik. Labbaika. La sharika. Is there anything else? Sometimes in Alhamdulillah and all that stuff. But 
All it means, Oh Allah, we respond to you. We respond to you. There is no partner to you. Oh Allah, we respond to you. Now Amr ibn Luhay added to that. They used to do their tawaf, they used to go to Kaaba, to the Hajj, and they used to say, لَبَّيْكَ اللَّهُمَّ لَبَّيْكَ لَبَّيْكَ لَا شَرِيكَ لَكَ إِلَّا شَرِيكًا هُوَ لَكَ تَمْلِكُهُ وَمَا مَلَكَ Which means, guys, I know it sounds nice, it's poetic, but don't. Okay? You know, like pop music and poetry, it all sounds nice, but don't. It stuffs your brain up, man. Alright? Stuffs it up. Had a young girl say, I love Justin Bieber, Balut. So why? He's just perfect. What do you mean he's perfect? In what way? What is he perfect? Does his backside shine on you or something? What's so perfect about him? See, his song is just amazing. It's just beautiful. What's what she's singing about? Sleeping around. Drugs. Well, he takes drugs himself. Sleeping around, all that rubbish. And all these other... You know what kills me? Some of the teenagers say to me, So, sir, you know that singer so-and-so? Did you know he's Muslim? So, I wish he was never Muslim. No? They couldn't find anyone but him. Muslim. Singing and showing that. And they look up to these people, right? Brothers and sisters, don't fall for the trick of the shaitan. This is his, his, his music, his voice, trying to teach you things. So he said, We respond to you, Allah, there is no partner to you, except a partner that belongs to you. And everything that partner has belongs to you. So he played around with words. So my brothers and sisters, they started to worship these idols in such a way. The Kaaba was filled with two golden deers, jewels, gold, everything. And the Kaaba, my brothers and sisters, is renovated every year, Did you know, every few decades. Did you know that? In those days, they used to worship the rocks. It kills when we go to Hajj and we see some ignorant Muslims, they're rubbing their hands on the rocks and they take photos and self says, they go to Hajj, right, and they come back. We don't ask them about how was your dua, how was your salat, how you? we say, did you touch the Kaaba? Did you touch it? Allah, I touched it. Did you really touch it? your photo. I sent it to you through Facebook, you just see it, you see it in real, real life. Did you really touch it? It's like the biggest thing. I touched the Kaaba and you see them sweating and they're praying. I touched the Kaaba. Did you finish your tawaf? Yeah, I think so. How many tawafs? I did seven. Are you sure? I don't know, man. Did you lose your wudu? Allah, I'm not sure. But I touched the Kaaba. <laughs> How many women did you have to bump into? I wasn't paying attention to the woman, brother. Come on. Allah is watching us. I'm not thinking about women. Brother, that woman fell on the floor. Astaghfirullah, Allah, it's not right. But I touched the Kaaba. I touch the rocks. Do you know what you're touching? Let me tell you what you're touching. You're not touching anything. Wallah, you're not touching anything. The Kaaba is renovated every few decades. It was renovated about 10 years ago. They took all the rocks off. <laughs> and they got new clay from the earth. New rocks from around. You've probably been walking on them somewhere. And they rebuilt it. That material, it's just threads they got from plants, silk. They thread it every year and they change the cloth. That's what you're touching. You're touching plants that have grown somewhere. You're touching rocks that you've probably stepped on before. 
That's all you're touching, my brothers and sisters. It is not the Kaaba that is sacred. It is the location that is sacred. The location that is sacred. We don't worship the Kaaba. Don't fall into the same problem. My brothers and sisters, I think that I should stop here because the Maghrib is, is now arrived. A few minutes? Two minutes? I think I'll stop here. And inshallah, is, is this okay the way I'm going or do you want me to summarize it more? Hands up if you would like me to make it quicker. How do you know? Some of you are thinking, I don't know all the history, I don't know what's missing. Is this okay? Is this okay for some of you too? Good? Next week, inshallah, I've still got to talk then about pre-Islamic Arabia. It's very important. We're going to talk about Abraham and how the elephant who wanted to destroy the Kaaba. We're going to talk about the boy and the king, Ashab al-Ukhdud. We're going to talk about how Christianity, Judaism and the Persian culture entered the Arabian lands. We're going to talk about how the Kiswa, the cloth, covered the Kaaba. We're going to talk about, inshallah, how Persia and Rome is significant to the coming of the Prophet That's next week, inshallah, and then we'll go into his birth and so on and so forth. May Allah subhanahu wa enlighten you and us in Iman and benefit us from what we are learning. Jazakumullah khayr wa sallallahu ala nabina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Are there any questions? One minute. I'll take one or two questions. Tadalah. Yes, the one about the Orientalists, the book that, I, I've got two of those volumes, it's called Muhammad by Yahya Emmerich. Any other question?